Well, you and I, we're on a quest. You and I are on a quest. It has highs, it has lows. It has joys, and it has sorrows. Some parts of the quest are pure and beautiful. Other parts of the quest are wretched and self-serving. We are all on this quest, and it is a quest for satisfaction. Gratification, happiness. This is because we all have a longing for it. We all have longings. We were created with these longings for community, marriage, sex, children, shelter, food, friendship, money, possessions. We have longings for a better life, a better career, a better body, a better personality, better vocations, a better whatever. Most of these aren't inherently bad, but they can be. They can be if they become ultimate on the journey. So no matter what it takes, if we're honest with ourselves, we pursue being satisfied and we want it like that. Songs have been written about this. I can't get no, you know, you know, you've heard the song. Songs have been written about this. Books have been written about this. Industry has been built upon this. Life is driven in many ways by it. And so taking this a step further, socially, this quest for satisfaction is fundamental in what's driving the sexual revolution. It's what's driving the porn industry. It's what's driving dating apps. It's what's driving media. It's what's driving... American politics. We want satisfaction. And we live here in the West in a modern day and a modern age where we can attain satisfaction with a little more ease than previous generations. If we want something, if we have the means for it, we can have it. Like that. Two-day shipping. No, no, no. Two-hour shipping. Delivered to our door. And yet... According to Gallup statistics, according to other modern-day, up-to-date statistics, people, particularly in our Western context, are more and more dissatisfied, more miserable, and more unhappy by the day. It's ironic, as things seem to improve in this modern, technologically advanced time, society is becoming more and more dissatisfied with each passing year. Quality of life in the West is plummeting. Our earthly quest is generally not really working out for us. We should let that sink in for a moment. We should let that sink in. So in a world that is growing more and more dissatisfied in a world of evasive satisfaction that is lasting, who or what can truly satisfy us? Where can we find lasting contentment no matter our circumstances? What can 
satisfy our deepest longings? These are big questions, huge questions, but they're questions that we all have asked or will ask in this room. And there's only one place, one place that we could find answers for these questions. So if you have your Bible, please turn in it to Psalm 63. If you, if you look, take your Bible like this and open right in the middle, you'll probably land somewhere in the middle of the Psalms. We're going to be looking at Psalm 63 this morning. If you don't have a Bible with you, please grab one from under a chair near you. You could find this Psalm on page 449. We're going to be living in these words. We're going to be living in this psalm this morning, so you'll be helped to keep your Bible open to it. All right, please follow along as I read Psalm 63. O oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings, I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is God's word to the church. Thanks be to God. Let's say that together. Thanks be to God. Amen. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to dive in uh, to the words of this psalm. Father, we ask that you would send your spirit now to meet us and to tend to your word. Quench us. Feed us. Satisfy us, O Lord. May we behold your glory in the face of Christ this morning. And Lord, we ask that you would open your word up to us. Open us up to your word. It's in the precious name of Christ that we all pray together. Amen. Well, with the words of this psalm fresh, in our minds, fresh in our hearts. Here's the big idea, the main point that David is making this morning. This is the main point and outline that I'd love for you to take with you when you leave this place today. Here it is. God alone can satisfy us. So seek him, find him, and rejoice in him. God alone can satisfy us. So, point one, seek him. I want to briefly draw our attention to the superscription, which are those words right above verse 1, right above the number 63 in those words there. 
They read a Psalm of David when he was in the wilderness of Judah. Before the first words of this prayer in verse 1, this tells us that this Psalm was likely written, penned, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit by David himself. And you will likely notice a footnote that, that comes right before the word when in your Bible. If your Bible has those footnotes and cross, cross-references. That footnote connects this psalm, Psalm 63, back to 2 Samuel 16 and 17, two of the chapters that we heard preached by Jeff last week. And we read in those chapters that David's son, Absalom, has David on the run and is treacherously pursuing his throne. In, this, in those chapters, we read of Absalom and his posse's plan to overthrow David and his kingdom. This is the context of the psalm, and it is critical in how we understand its words. David is outside of his kingdom. David is far away from his throne, far away from the sanctuary of God. He is north of Jerusalem in no man's land. And it is here where David prays, verse 1. Look there with me. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Here David prays to his God. His God who is not impersonal or detached or cold or a deadbeat. No, David cries out to his personal, relational, covenant God who is like a dear friend to him, who is a dear friend to all of those who seek him. And David is seeking him not passively, but actively, earnestly, you notice that word? He's earnestly seeking the Lord. I love that word, earnestly. His soul is thirsty for him. His flesh is fainting for him like a wandering, weary person who longs for satisfying water in the midst of a desert. And this soul-flesh language is, is important. It's important because the soul and the flesh make up the whole person inside and out. David is seeking God holistically. He's longing for him holistically as he wanders in a dry and weary land. Brothers and sisters, David is in the wilderness. Literally and metaphorically. He's literally in a dry place, a desolate place, a place like Death Valley or the Sahara Desert. It's hot. The ground is cracked. It's uncomfortable. He's also metaphorically in the wilderness. He is on the run, displaced. He is in a spiritual and emotional distress. And he is grieving his son's rebellion. He's grieving his son's insurrection. It seems that the whole world is against him. He is weary. And it's in this place, it is in this position 
literally and metaphorically, that David does not do what Job's wife tells him to do in Job to curse God and die. No, it's, it's in this place, it's in the desert where he seeks the God of life, where he seeks him. And if you've been alive or if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know where David is. Emotionally, and you know where he is spiritually. The wilderness isn't a foreign place for most of us. Now, maybe a family member isn't gunning you down. There's no insurrection for your throne. Sure, those are unique to David's experience here. But you and I know what the wilderness is like because we are always in one form or another going into a wilderness, coming out of the wilderness, or in the wilderness. The wilderness of chronic illness. The wilderness of crippling anxiety. The wilderness of vengeful anger, animosity, anguish. The wilderness of discontentment. The wilderness of mental illness. The wilderness of family estrangement, of marital despair. The wilderness of loss. The wilderness of loss of a loved one, a spouse, a a child, a mother or a father, a friend or a relative, someone who is dear to us. We've all experienced or will experience the depths of what it is to be in a waterless wasteland to one degree or another. But brothers and sisters, here is the difficult and simultaneously beautiful lesson that is learned in the desert. We see this in David's life and we see this in our own, Lord willing. It's in the wilderness, it's in that place that the Lord does his most defining and refining work. In the wilderness, God does his most defining and refining work in us. It's in the valley, in the desert, in the wilderness. We learn dependence anew. We learn humility. We learn where the waters of contentment and satisfaction can be found in the depths of hardship. And here's the thing. We don't, we don't know thirst and hunger for God until we have wandered in the wilderness, right? We don't know what it is to thirst and hunger for him until we have been there, in that place, So what have the wildernesses of your life produced in you? What are they producing in you? Whether you're coming out of the wilderness, entering the wilderness, or in the wilderness, what is God teaching you? What has he taught you? At the end of the day, the wilderness does one of two things to us. It either draws us closer to the Lord who gives life or it pushes us further away. 
have the wildernesses of life drawn you closer to God or have they pushed you further away? What is the wilderness producing in you? David models here what it is to seek God in the wilderness, what it is in the darkest of circumstances to go to him, to seek him, and to worship him, even in the midst of these dark circumstances. Look there with me at verses two through four. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you, so I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. David is far away from the sanctuary of God in Jerusalem, but it is here in the wilderness, brothers and sisters, where David learns that the presence and the power and the glory of God is not solely found in a place, but it goes with him. It is wherever he is. God is not bound to a building. He is always bound to his people. Always. And he is bound to us in steadfast love. His loyal covenant love that is, as David says, better than life. This is the hesed love of God. Hesed in the Hebrew, his loyal covenant love. And David is filled with worshipful confidence because of it. See, David recognizes that no circumstance in this life, nothing can separate him from the love of his God. And it's the same for us, church. It's the same for us. God's very presence, even now, is the evidence of his steadfast love for us. His presence through his word, his presence through his people, his presence through his son's work on the cross on our behalf. And that is our assurance. And isn't that a comfort, brothers and sisters? Isn't that a comfort? That the wickedness of men or the valley of the shadow of death or even death itself can't separate a Christian from the love of God? That's amazing, isn't it? Amen. And therefore, we can pray with David these words and we could sing and declare with Paul in Romans 8, verses 37 through 39, that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this love is better than life itself. Death may come to David in the wilderness, but God's love is better to him than life itself. Do you believe that as David does? Not only on the days when the sun is out, but do you believe that when the sun is setting and the storm and the loneliness of the wilderness set in around you? May we, like David, on the best of days and the worst of days, recall the truth of these verses here in 1 through 4 and seek God, bless God, and praise God, lifting our hands to him as children reaching out to a parent as long as we live. These four verses, this whole psalm really, captures the spiritual journey of the God-seeking Christian soul. The psalm is that journey. It captures that journey. And we have learned here that David, 
from David, that if we seek God and satisfaction in him, even in the darkest of circumstances, we will find his love and we will be met with, with satisfaction. And most of all, we will find him. We're going to find him. So that leads us into our next point. Point two, find him. Let's read verses five through eight once again. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me. Think with me for a moment about the most satisfying meal you've ever had. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I could see the thought bubbles. It's good, right? It's good. Now, what did you do in response to that meal? Did you praise the food in your belly? No, no, no. You, you praised the chef. You praised the chef. Maybe even wrote a Yelp review or kissed your spouse or pat yourself on the back. And then you recommended that meal to all of your friends and family, right? Well, here David draws a correlation between finding the satisfaction of a good meal and finding satisfaction in a good God. He makes a connection here between delighting in good food that brings joy and delight He makes this connection with the God who brings true, lasting, fulfilling joy. And here's the thing. We need to catch this. David is not praising the food here. That's what we see in verse 6. He's not remembering the satisfaction of a meal upon his bed. He's not meditating on the rich food in the middle of the night. No, he's meditating on and praising God. Again, David is in the wilderness. So we, so we shouldn't miss this. When we are in the wilderness, when we are in those dark seasons of life, we are called to do what David does here in these verses, to a ministry of remembering. We are called to remember God's love, grace, and mercy, and goodness, even when we can't see it. We're called to remember God's love, grace, mercy, and goodness as it has touched our lives in seasons past. Though it's hard to see clearly God's goodness in the midst of sorrow and loss, we are called to this. We need to be reminded by others about this. This is one of the key reasons, church, that we have been given the church, to carry one another's burdens, to remind one another of the goodness of God. So in the midst of grief and loss, don't withdraw from God or from the people of God. No, press into God, press in to his people. And you will find help and you will find joy, even in the midst of sorrow. Well, again, here David is not remembering or meditating upon the rich food of verses 5 through 6. He is remembering and praising the satisfying provider of it. 
it has been said in a variety of ways before me that we are fully capable of desiring things from God while not desiring God. Does that make sense? We shouldn't confuse this. We can long for a gift, but throw out the gift giver, explicitly or implicitly. We're capable of this. We're capable of this. And so I wonder what gifts that you find your earthly satisfaction in that, that come from God, but that you've made your kind of ultimate goal in life. Food, drink, money, success, things, career, vacations, politics, games, toys, game cards, hunting, fishing, recreation, comfort. Take inventory. These, these things aren't all inherently bad in themselves. They are good gifts, but they will leave us wanting. They will leave us wanting, and they will leave us wanting satisfaction because they will come and they will go with the seasons of our lives. But if we seek and find satisfaction in God as as David does here, in the giver of these things and not the things themselves, then we will find, again, true satisfaction. And just to drill down a little bit on David's point here, when we seek God, we will find him. We will find God. And when we find God, we will find satisfaction that is lasting and good and true. A satisfaction that transcends anything that this fleeting life can offer or anything that comes our way. Brothers and sisters, if you are thirsty and hungry for God, if you thirst and hunger for him, his word, fellowship with his people, then you will find joy. You will find lasting satisfaction. That's David's point here. But he doesn't stop there. He continues to pray and praise the God who is with him and near to him. Look with me again at verses 7 through 8. For you have been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. In the midst of the wilderness, David continues to look to God, remembering his power and his glory, his steadfast love, his satisfaction, and now his help. God is not only David's provider, but he is also his protector. God is a protector. Like verse 7 says, like a bird that shelters her younglings. Like a soldier that lies over his brother on the battlefield, receiving the shrapnel of war. He is a protector, a defender that takes arrows in defense of the weak. God is a refuge and a safe harbor for his people. That's what David is saying here. For David and for us, he is, as Psalm 46.1 says, he is our refuge and strength, a very present help in times of trouble. Amen? It's incredible. It's an incredible truth. This is how the Lord protects his people in the darkest of times. He stands between them 
and the enemy, and he covers us with his wings. He stands as our shelter. And David sings for joy because of this. He is confident because of this. And he, verse 8, holds fast to God because of this, knowing that God is holding fast to him and upholding him, right? You see that there in that verse, verse 8? Behold the upholding God. This is the God who is with us and in us and for us. And ultimately, we can never be saved or defended by the intensity of our faith or our ability to cling to him. No, he upholds us in ways that far surpass our strength. We are weak. He is strong. For weak and wounded and weary, wilderness Christians, this is good news, right? This is good news. And church, no matter our circumstances, if we seek satisfaction in God, find satisfaction in God, and remember that we belong to God, our all-satisfying God, then we can sing with joy the words of this psalm and trust the words of Isaiah 41 verse 10. Fear not, for I am with you. Oh, be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will give you aid. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will cause you to stand. I will uphold you with my righteous hand. Now, even though David knows this truth, he knows this intellectually and experientially, yet he's living in the tension of it, like we so often do, and that that tension of knowing something but actually experiencing it. Those are very different things. But they come together here in David's processing in the wilderness and prayer in the wilderness. He knows who God is intellectually and spiritually and experientially. And yet he is still aware of the dangers. He is aware of the treachery of those who are seeking to kill him. And so he continues to pray with this awareness. He makes a a slight turn here in the prayer that results in rejoicing. It results in rejoicing. So that brings us to point three. Rejoice in him, uh, verses 9 through 11. Uh, David is, is weak and weary, but he is holding on to his God as his God, who he has sought and found, is holding on to him. And he concludes this psalm with the confidence that God, who is his helper and his defender, will bring justice to his enemies. And so he writes in verses 9 through 11, look there with me. But those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. You may be tempted to think this is a strange kind of direction and deviation from the rest of the psalm, but no, no, no. This is all part of the whole. For this is intimately connected. These verses are intimately connected to what David has already prayed in the preceding verses. In this psalm, this prayer of confident assurance. David is confident that his God will be his help and his vindication here. 
He is confident in seeking God for life in him, that those who seek to destroy him will only find death by the sword. He is assured with a spirit-given assurance that men like Absalom will find no sanctuary in this life or the next, but will only find the perfect judgment of God. And that they will be in the depths of Sheol, the depths of the earth. He is confident before his God that his enemies will be left for the jackals. Some of your translations may say foxes. It's the old, I'm an older translation of this. But the word there is scavenger. It's a scavenger. It's left there for the jackals. David is assured with spirit-given assurance that men like Absalom, men like him, will find their remains under the perfect judgment of God. As king, which he calls himself there in verse 11, David is confident in all of this, and so what does he do? He rejoices. He rejoices in God, knowing that all who swear by him, trust in him, will be exalted. That's us, beloved. That the mouths of liars, those who oppose God, will be stopped. On, this, on that day, or on the last day, when Christ returns. David is confident in his God. He is not taking matters into his own hands, but he is resting in the vindication and the judgment of the Lord that says in Deuteronomy 32, vengeance is mine. Brothers and sisters, may this be our confidence in the wilderness of our own lives. May this be our Confidence as we face injustices in our own lives. Vengeance and vindication belong to the Lord ultimately. And He will have the final word. He will. Now, if you're like me, if you're a Christian, you've come here to the to the last verse, verse eleven, and you may be thinking. Oh, I, I don't often thirst for God like this guy. I, I don't often hunger for God like David is here. I got to try harder. Besides, I'm exhausted at the end of the day. The wilderness is pretty exhausting, Chris. And so I, I, I don't really meditate on God at all hours of the night. I'm I'm really taken by fear over meditation upon the Lord. I'm also not full of joy and praise often. I don't often cling to God enough. I rarely understand or experience him holding on to me. I rarely seek God to vindicate me. I like to take matters in my own hands and my own heart. I don't even know if I'm the rejoicer or the liar in verse 11. I need to try harder, and I need to do better. If you're thinking this way, if you're feeling this way, then you're in good company. You're in good company. But you have missed the point. And you're not reading this psalm like a Christian. Yes, it is good to seek God. 
to thirst for him, to hunger for him, to remember his power and his glory and his steadfast love. It is good to praise him and to bless him. It is good to pursue finding satisfaction and rejoice in him. It is good to cling to him. And our prayer ought to be David's prayer here. With the follow-up, God, help me do this. To seek you, to find you, to rejoice in you for my good and your glory. But beloved, ultimately, this psalm, these words are not about what's being done by you. It is what has been done for you. It's not about what's being done by you. It is what has been done for you. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus. He sent his son that whoever believes in him, whoever walks with him, trusts in him, hungers and thirsts for him as Savior and Lord and is repentant of their sin, will not, verse 11, be destroyed will not go into the depths of hell, will not be given over to the sword, will not be a portion for scavengers, but will have what? Eternal life. Jesus changes everything. He changes everything. And he also changes the way we read this psalm. He has faithfully done in our place what we could never do on our own. Jesus is the point and the perfecter of this psalm. And every stanza, every verse is fulfilled and unlocked in him and by him. Scholar and writer Chad Bird says this about Jesus. He is the key and he is the content. In one way or another, every psalm whispers his name and winks about his mission. Do you love that? See, this psalm finds its hope and fulfillment in the life of the perfect son, in the perfect king, King Jesus. By show of hands, who has ever done one of those connect the dots exercises? A dot-to-dot game, you know, where you start with the one dot and then you follow, you trace it around, and then you, by the end, create a whole image. My kids love these. I love these. (laughs) Well, this psalm is part of the larger dot-to-dot of Scripture. The dot-to-dot that starts with the Old Testament and finds its complete image and shape in the New Testament. And if we don't see this, then we're going to read this psalm incorrectly. If we don't see this, we don't understand this, then we're not going to read the psalm like a Christian. We're going to read the psalm like we're sitting in a synagogue. Now, this isn't near, this list isn't near exhaustive, but I want to show how this psalm, these words find their dot-to-dot connection in Christ in the New Testament in six ways. Here we go, six ways. First, Christ came to quench the spiritually thirsty in the wilderness fully and finally. In John chapter 4, verses 13 and 14, Christ tells the woman at the well, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of that water 
that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give, the water that I will give will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. Jesus is the living water for those who are thirsty, and he is worthy to be praised. Amen? Amen. Second, number two, Christ feeds the spiritually hungry once and for all. In John chapter 6, verse 35, you know it. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Jesus is food for the hungry. Third, Christ not only feeds, but he also fully satisfies. This is what we heard earlier, read in, in Matthew 14. You should pay attention to that verse, verse 20. All who ate were satisfied. Is that a coincidence? No, it's not. Jesus satisfies completely. Fourth, Christ in his Sermon on the Mount says this, with David's life on his mind, you can almost see and hear his words in, in this, this beatitude. He says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Wow. Whoa. Fifth, at the climax of Jesus' life, right before he went to the cross, what did he give his disciples and the church in the upper room? A soul-satisfying meal. A meal of grace. A meal that, is, that comes to us in the shape of the gospel. In Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29, 29 we read, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. In the Lord's Supper, in the meal that we're gonna take next week, next Sunday morning, Weary Christians feast on Christ by faith. That's what we do when we take that meal together. In the meal, that that meal is a sweet reminder of God's presence, provision, goodness, and steadfast love for us in Christ as we endure, with the Lord's help, the highs and lows of this life as we endure the pasture lands, the sweet pasture lands, and the wildernesses, the valleys of this life. Again, we're going to be taking this meal next week, so I would encourage you, I would encourage you to prepare your heart to take it together next week if, if you're not reconciled with someone in the congregation for any, for any reason. Go to that brother or sister. Be reconciled this week so that we can take the meal together as Christians, as a church, in a worthy manner. Lastly, sixth, Psalm 63, and all these connected passages above point to the final satisfying meal between Christ and his people in eternity. It's the meal of Revelation 19, verse 9, the eternal marriage supper of the Lamb. Oh, and that will be a satisfying meal into eternity once and for all. Aren't you looking forward to that? I am. I am. Psalm 63. 
all the way to Revelation, all the way to the end of our Bibles, finds its dot to dot, its completion in Jesus. He is our confidence. He's our confidence. He is our assurance. He has done what we could never do perfectly. And to just briefly walk through this psalm with Jesus in mind. Jesus sought God perfectly. He thirsted for God perfectly. The steadfast love of God was upon Jesus and was evidenced through him perfectly. He blessed the Lord, sought him, meditated on him perfectly. He clung to him and was upheld by his father perfectly. He rejoiced in God perfectly. He declared victory over his enemies in his cross and resurrection, killing sin and death once and for all perfectly. What we do so often unfaithfully and imperfectly, he has done perfectly in our place. And that is good news for weak and wounded and weary Christians. We must look to Christ. We must. He is our hope. He is our righteousness. He is our salvation. And he is wholly worthy of our praise and glory. He's wholly worthy of it. We are fully dependent upon him. And because of him, we can, like David, rejoice. We can rejoice. You know, he did what we cannot do in our own strength. So again, look to him. Rest in him. Seek and find satisfaction in his gospel work once and for all, in his perfect life, his wrath-bearing death on the cross for sinners like you and I and in his glorious resurrection. Rest in the gospel of Jesus. Rest in it. If you're here this morning, and you don't know what I'm talking about, if you're like, I I don't really know Jesus, and I'm really not sure about what you just talked about there, about his life, his death, his resurrection, what is that? You have questions about what it looks like to repent and believe on him? I'll be standing in the back after the service, where you can stick around for the Thanksgiving feast, when we can talk about the feast of the gospel together. There is nothing that I would rather do this afternoon. There is nothing that the other elders here, other pastors here at the church would rather do than to sit down and talk with you about how you can seek God, find God, and rejoice in God and in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Nothing. So take us up on it. Take us up on it. Jesus says to you today, if you're in that place, Jesus says to you, come to me, repent of your sin, believe on me for eternal life, taste and see that the Lord is good and be satisfied in me. If you have questions about this, I'll be standing in the back again. Love to talk with you. Well, in closing, In closing, brothers and sisters, the church father, Augustine, said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Well, we could could 
spin that and turn that a little bit. Similarly, we could say, you have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are dissatisfied until they are satisfied in you. And so returning to those questions that I, that I asked back at the beginning of our time together, in a world that is growing more and more dissatisfied by the day, in a world of fleeting and evasive, moment by moment, satisfaction that's here today, gone tomorrow, who or what can truly satisfy us? Who or what? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. Where can we find contentment no matter our circumstances? In Jesus, the one who is God with us and God for us. Who can satisfy our deepest longings, brothers and sisters? It's Jesus. He alone can satisfy us. So seek him, find him, and rejoice in him. Let's pray. Take a moment of silence now to confess and repent all the ways that you have sought satisfaction outside of God. Hear now this assurance of pardon from Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for saving and satisfying sinners in the work of your son Jesus. Cause us to rest in you. Cause us to find satisfaction in you. We ask that you would quench us and that you would feed us and that we would be satisfied in us as we walk by faith and not by sight, heavenward, even this morning as a church. It's in the name of Christ that we pray. Amen.